Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's expert guest is Dr. Cecilia Kittick, who has a PhD in exercise physiology and immunonutrition and has published over 80 research papers exploring inflammation and oxidative stress, nutrition, immunology, our endocrine system, and the gut. Cecilia has a background as an academic, lecturing and researching, and applies this in clinical practice with her multidisciplinary team at the IVS Project to enhance fertility and reproductive treatment outcomes. Cecilia's mission is to empower women and men with evidence-based strategies for better reproductive health, optimal fertility, and conception. On today's podcast episode, we chat through all things fertility and gut health and how the two are linked. You can find Cecilia on Instagram at the IVF Project and at Fertile Gut. So grab a pen and paper and make sure you share this podcast episode with all your friends and family who may need it. Let's dive right in. Today's episode is monitored by Garmin. If you're sick of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, Garmin gives you up to 11 days of battery life on a single charge. So if you want a smartwatch that stays on your wrist and not on your charger, head to garmin.com.au to find out more and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now here's our podcast. Welcome Cecilia to the podcast today. We're absolutely so excited to have you on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to share all of this information with your listeners. I know and I'm saying, I was saying to you just before we jumped on that I've had a lot of experts speaking about gut health. I've had quite a few experts speaking about fertility and pregnancy, but I've never actually had an expert speaking about both. So it really is an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. It is, um, I'm sure once we talk about this connection, everything will fall into place with the knowledge that your community is already coming with. Absolutely. And I guess it's it's a very niche area, isn't it? So how did you get into this? It's a very exciting space as well. Did you fall into it naturally or was it always something that you were more driven towards? No, it is exciting. Absolutely. This space, but I did not foresee this in my future (laughs) like 20 years ago. So I studied exercise and sports science in my undergrad and during that time I was exposed to research and that was just the light bulb moment. It just became my passion and I was so excited about the fact that we could answer questions that no one knew the answers to. So during that time, I was doing lots of cycling, a lot more than I am now, but um, I was really interested into um, or just interested in how people adapt to different training loads Mm -hmm. and why some people could do huge amounts of training and not get sick, not go into overreaching, overtraining, but then some others, you know, would do similar loads and end up really quite sick or overreach. So In my honours, I was really interested in looking at, I'm always about getting to the level of the cell. So if you're telling me um, that taking vitamin C is going to increase my progesterone levels, I want to know why and what's going on at the cellular level. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in my PhD or with my honours, I looked at oxidative stress and inflammation because as we know, these processes underpin every disease state um, when we're looking at 
our fertility. We're going to get to talk about that a bit more. But essentially, they also influence our adaptations to training and how well our immune system's working, our endocrine system, our metabolism. So I started to dive a little bit deeper into those processes and we were looking at nutritional modulation of those components in my PhD. We've been interested in looking at um, curcumin and fish oils and colostrum and leucine and beta-alanine and caffeine and understanding essentially how nutrition can modulate our physiology and help in managing our immune system and function so that we can optimally, you know, have the best health possible. So mm. even all those years ago when we were looking at this research, I actually said in my thesis, there's a sentence saying, I think this is working because it's impacting something in the gut. Like we knew that when these compounds were taken, it wasn't essentially like they were being broken down and immediately absorbed directly as is and having an impact it was almost like there was something in the middle sort of modulating that communication. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we went, well, actually, it could be the gut. So from there, our research moved into looking more at that. We did some early work in understanding the impact probiotics could have on performance and also a real interest in intestinal integrity. And that's important because that's our gut barrier that offers protection from the outside world in so with all of that work going on in the background and then I got to the point where we were ready to grow our family. I had endometriosis. I'd also been um, an undiagnosed celiac until my early 20s. Mm -hmm. So these sorts of things compounding there. And I had my first endometriosis surgery when I was 21. And at the time, I remember the specialist just saying, yeah, we've done the surgery. You might have trouble getting pregnant. See you later. Mm -hmm. And so obviously at 21, I wasn't thinking about it, mm -hmm. but came back many years later. And um, yeah, in trying to grow our family, we tried for a few months and I thought, oh, I know I've got endometriosis. Let's, you know, IVF is the solution. Let's go down that pathway. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until going through lots of fertility treatment that I really stopped and starting putting all the pieces of the puzzle together in understanding IVF has no impact on the quality of your eggs and sperm or your uterine receptivity. It is not doing anything to modify that. So I, we started looking at the factors that we did have some control over and we're very lucky now that I've got my beautiful son. And um, But it was certainly, you know, a bit of a journey in going through that. Now, after that, went back researching, lecturing, teaching, and it was actually a colleague at work who talked with me and he knew my journey and he'd said, oh, we're actually, we're giving up, we're stopping IVF treatments, you know, just been really too hard. And in my mind, I'm thinking there are so many things you can be doing to help potentially improve the outcome of your treatment and no one is talking about this. No, no one at the time asked me or my husband about our health. No one asked what we were eating. No one mm. asked about the type of activity mm. we were doing. No one asked about the stresses in our life mm. or our work, work environments. And so it was, I was just going, we have to change this landscape. We need to actually make sure that people are getting evidence-based information about how they can improve their chance of pregnancy success. So I know we've talked about those words, fertility and pregnancy, Leanne, but I think it's really important that your listeners know 
this is not just about getting pregnant. This is about our general reproductive health and well-being, okay, and having a healthy menstrual cycle and all of the benefits that that brings with us as well. So that led us to create, we have our multidisciplinary clinic called the IVF Project and we see people across the globe and essentially we combine exercise physiology, dietetics and psychology to really actually take a deep dive into those factors that impact the health of our ingredients that go into baby making. That's so fascinating because I've actually had a few friends go through the IVF process as well. And literally, I think the only health marker that a lot of doctors tend to look for is like your BMI. It's like, are you in that overweight or obese category? And if you're not, okay, cool, tick the box. But as you said, it doesn't explain, you know, the impact of the quality of the eggs, the quality of the sperm, the first, you know, a thousand days. Like we know there's so much from a gut health perspective that we can actually do. Absolutely. And you know that not one client who we have helped achieve a pregnancy have we measured their weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start, I guess, with the most obvious question. We'll take it right back to basics. What does or why does gut health matter in terms of fertility? Like how do they both go together? Why do they both matter? Um, well, absolutely. Like our reproductive organs may seem a little bit removed from our gut, but our gut is fundamental to our fertility. So I think when we're talking about fertility, it's important in thinking about, well, what are the predictors of fertility? What makes healthy eggs and sperm and a healthy uterus that's receptive? So when we think about those healthy elements of the baby equation, it really comes down to looking at predictors of success for that relate to what's the antioxidant status of that egg and sperm? You know, what environment are they maturing in, in our follicles? What's the content of that follicular fluid? What's the, um, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acid content of that? How much oxidation is going on? How many immune-stimulating endotoxins are present? And those are the things that impact our conception ability and those ingredients. Now, when we start to think about what's impacting those and we come back a little bit, it starts to make sense that our gut, who is the master controller of all of these things like our metabolism, our immune function, our endocrine system, our mood, all of that is controlling the environment that our eggs and sperm are maturing in and even influencing what's going on in our uterus. So our gut microbes are you know, outnumber us. (laughs) They are very predictive of even our weight. If we were to sequence our own human genome, it might predict weight 50% of the time. Whereas if we sequence the microbiome genome, we actually will predict weight about 90% of the time. So these guys are in charge. They are influencing insulin sensitivity. They are influencing our hormone concentrations they are influencing the level of inflammation that's going on um, in our body, you know, regulating our immune system and essentially how responsive it is, you know, or overactive it is to certain stimuli. Our gut microbes will actually even produce compounds that are really beneficial for our fertility and help with managing other conditions like PCOS and endometriosis that can impact, you know, um, why it might be a little bit more difficult in conceiving. And I think when we actually look now, and there's so much data around this, which is really exciting, we actually see 
dysbiosis or disruption of that gut microbiome is present in PCOS, endometriosis, unexplained infertility, and ovulation, so just women that maybe don't have um, an identified reason for why they're not ovulating. It's the same in PCOS as well, male factor infertility. All of these are associated with dysbiosis, Mm. and that is essentially underpinning a lot of the disruption that takes place as our eggs and sperm are developing. And even a lot of autoimmune conditions are linked back to dysbiosis, aren't they, as well? Oh, absolutely. Hashimoto's. And again, those thyroid components impact our fertility. Looking at rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes. Celiac disease. (laughs) Yes, celiac (laughs) disease, um, endometriosis. All of these are absolutely tied back to the gut and we know it because when we start to then modify that community we see a dampening in those things that impact our fertility even just as an example if we take for example particular microbes from someone with PCOS for example so PCOS is polycystic ovary syndrome and it's a common reason why people do seek out fertility treatments like IVF and if you take the gut microbes out of someone with PCOS and you put that into a healthy mouse, that mouse will instantly start to have insulin resistance. It's going to start to have an increase in its circulating androgens, so high testosterone, which again has impacts on our fertility. It is going to then influence fertility and conception. We see an increase in inflammation we see an increase in circulating endotoxins, so um, compounds that come from the cell wall of bacteria like LPS or lipopolysaccharide. Normally, if our bacteria is sitting in our gut and it stays in our gut and our gut wall is really nice and we've um, got a strong gut wall and the cells are held together well, Mm -hmm. there's no issues, you know. Mm -hmm. Everything's working well. But as soon as we start to have a bit of disruption in that gut community, that dysbiosis causes more inflammation That inflammation is like a chemical signal to disrupt those tight junctions between the gut. And we start to see that translocation of particular immune-stimulating compounds going from the gut into systemic circulation. And those processes are essentially what underlie impacts in on our fertility as well. And we're essentially talking about for lack of a better word, that leakiness of the gut, which I think has been lost a little bit on social media because a lot of people use it as a diagnosis, not actually as a, you know, as a part of a condition that you're sort of suffering. So those tight junctions in the cell wall can have that leakiness, which allow compounds to move through it. That's what you're, that's what you're referencing, isn't it? Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. Leaky gut is not a diagnosis. It's not a medically sanctioned term in terms of that context of diagnosing. Mm -hmm. It's a symptom of what's going on. And it's important too, again, it does get taken out of context, but leaky gut or such just means that we've got an increase in that intestinal permeability. Mm-hmm. Now, our gut should be permeable at times. Mm-hmm. It, we need to let things through, you know, that's how we're getting our nutrients and fluid. But it's about when that increased permeability is present for extended periods of time or it's not resolving. And so there are so many stimulus, um, so much stimulus that can impact the integrity of those tight junctions. We know the presence of inflammation and oxidative stress. We know ischemia reperfusion. So if you're actually restricting blood flow to the gut and then all of a sudden you have an increased return of blood to the gut, that can cause a little bit of damage. 
my research group has looked at the impact of heat on that intestinal barrier, probiotics, mm. um, and exercise intensity and mode. And one of my students has just finished her PhD looking at female health and performance and the impact of progesterone and estrogen on that intestinal integrity as well. So, when we're talking about what we do, it's essentially looking at how do we improve that gut community? How do we actually get more diversity in there and reduce that dysbiosis? And that will then lead to reinforcing that integrity of the intestinal barrier and then helping manage all those other on-floor effects that we typically see. Oh, I could ask you so many questions right now <laughs> around that. But what I'm going to sort of, I guess, focus on is really thinking about what good gut health means because I guess there's no I guess textbooks or medical definition for quote-unquote good gut health so to you we've talked about you know um, reducing down that permeability of the gut health making sure it's nice and strong and that sort of thing but what else does good gut health mean to you because when I think about it to me it's mostly sort of the absence of disease but also making sure we have a rich microbiome as well so it's like a two-part it's reducing down symptoms but it's also making sure that what we're putting in is is flourishing you know from within as well do you have your own I guess definition of what a good healthy gut would mean yeah I um you know everything you said is again just setting the scene because I think often when we hear that word gut health people go oh, I don't have any gut symptoms, my gut's I'm fine. fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I want to really stress that um, gut health is not the absence of symptoms. And even when we're looking in research and we're actually trying to understand symptoms like, um, you know, bloating or um, increased frequency of opening bowels, diarrhea, all of these components, there's sometimes not necessarily a direct relationship between symptoms and integrity of the intestinal wall. So that's a that's a key point there. You can actually have dysbiosis in your gut in terms of the gut community maybe not being entirely happy. Maybe you've got some more pathogenic bacteria in there or maybe you don't have enough of the good guys in there. That can manifest as fatigue, you know, inflammation, your autoimmune conditions, mm-hmm. getting sick frequently if you have trouble losing weight, Reflux is a big one that many people are surprised to associate with that. You might have uh, acne or psoriasis. So dysbiosis can manifest outside of, and you don't even need to have gastrointestinal symptoms for that to be present. It's really um, quite interesting. In part of our work, we actually will often look at the microbiome of clients, and that involves using, there are many ways to do that, but We strongly recommend if you're going to the um, (laughs) trouble of doing that, that you use the gold standard research grade metagenomic shotgun sequencing to look at your microbiome. And essentially, no one can come, if someone says to you, I can tell you exactly what a beautiful microbiome has in it for species, that's a red flag Mm -hmm. because we do not know (laughs) what the exact makeup of the perfect microbiome is. What we can look at is who's in there, getting an idea of some of the species we know are associated with different impacts on reproductive health, but also, importantly, the function. And that's ultimately what we want to know. It doesn't matter sometimes who's doing the work. It's just show us the outcome and we can start to get a picture of who's living in there, what jobs they're going to do, and how they're going to help out your fertility. Amazing. So, 
gut health is important with or without symptoms. Fertility is very important as well, particularly if you are trying to, you know, start a family or extend your family. Now, when we think about menstrual cycles, we know that that's sort of important. I I have done a podcast before on um, um, HJ, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which um, we talk about a lot with sort of athletes and that sort of thing. So we know that having a healthy menstrual cycle is important, but how does that play an impact on gut health and fertility? Yeah, they're definitely related because our gut, um, part of the role of our gut is in regulating our hormones, particularly when we're looking at, um, you know, hyperestrogenic pathologies like endometriosis. So we've got our estrobilome or, a, you know, group of a species in our gut that will produce beta-glucuronidases. And these are enzymes that essentially will almost recycle estrogen. So sometimes the way we get rid of estrogen is in our feces and these enzymes will sort of break it off and essentially recirculate it back into the bloodstream. So it's quite common when we're doing this exploration of the microbiome that we might see some of these bacteria that actually have a lot of beta-glucuronidases and sort of promoting that estrogen. That's really important, particularly in conditions like endometriosis. So we've got the hormone control of our cycle. Um, On the other side of the coin, if you've got polycystic ovary syndrome, you are likely to have bacteria in your gut that are promoting high levels of androgens. And we know then that that's going to impact those communication signals from our hypothalamus and pituitary to impact ovulation. And even you were talking about HA before, we know the gut has dysbiosis in all of those conditions. Like when you start to look at, you know, these females with HA, there's a lot of disruption there as well. So Oh my gosh, we could just talk all day about this because it is so <laughs> exciting. But even in women that have um, exacerbated premenstrual um, symptoms, mm-hmm. which can be quite debilitating, but looking at that, we start to see changes in the gut as well. They might have a lot more Prevotella bacteria that can tend to be the bacteria that promotes inflammation and might actually sort of dampen some of the beneficial butyrate producing microbes in there. So Butyrate, which your listeners will probably know because you can't really talk about gut health Mm -hmm. without talking about short-chain fatty acids, Mm -hmm. but these are one of the byproducts or postbiotics that happen when your bacteria are breaking down our beautiful complex carbohydrates. And butyrate is particularly important because it will influence metabolism. It has a role in terms of, um, you know, fat regulation, it influences insulin sensitivity, it influences our cardiovascular health, but also it can reduce lesion growth in endometriosis. Like it is a very, um, we're talking globally here, but it is generally a very anti-inflammatory um, compound that our gut produces that is very beneficial for our fertility. It even reinforces the integrity of those gut cells. So it tries to hold them together for you. Mm -hmm. And it also tells those cells to produce a little bit more mucus because we've got this beautiful thick mucus layer in our gut that can act as a bit of protection. Now, if you've got IBS or uh, we see lots of clients with IBS, um, And those conditions, particularly of IBD, like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, that mucus layer is pretty degraded. And that, again, causes more inflammation. We've got less protective barrier. And that's why we start to see those flow-on consequences as well of systemic inflammation and everything else that comes along with that. Let's take a quick healthy break and a quick breather. If you have a smartwatch, check your stats. 
If you had a Garmin, you'd be able to check your health stats for up to 11 days on one charge. It's a smartwatch that spends more time on your wrist and less time on charge. So if you're tired of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, get a Garmin. Wearing your smartwatch for longer could give you a more complete picture of your health. A Garmin can help you manage your stress levels with relaxation reminders and short breathing activities when your watch detects that you're stressed. It can monitor your energy levels throughout the day so you can find the best times for activity and rest. And it also has a hydration tracking tool that allows you to log your daily fluid intake. Now you can do more on a single charge. See which Garmin suits you at garmin.com.au and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now, let's get back to our show. And so going back to the menstrual cycle, how does the pill influence fertility? Because I know I've had a lot of friends who have been on the pill and they've come off it and hoping to get pregnant straight away. And for some of them, it's taken years. Um, and so I know that there's a lot of, I guess, talk on social media around the pill and it not being good or it not being healthy, but they're just more, I guess, generalist opinions from a lot of, I would probably say influences. What's your sort of science approach to the pill and menstruation? Yeah, we could do a whole episode on this. And <laughs> I have to bring it back. <laughs> I must say um, we are interested in women when they're not on the pill. Um, mm. The pill is used often as part of preparations for assisted reproductive treatments like IVF and there are impacts there. But in the global context of talking about the pill, um, we know that, yes, maybe it does reduce a bit of lactobacillus in the uterus and it might actually increase a few of the pathogenic bacteria in the uterus. So for some women, yes, it may take a long time for their period to return when they come off the pill. But part of that is also then, well, were they going to be oligomenorrheic anyway? It, they just had the pill masking that. And we, mm -hmm. lots of people sort of go through this cycle where it takes at least sort of five, six years, if not more, for our hormones to actually find their groove when we start menstruating. So often you've got this phase where early on um, you might get your period, you know, uh, after a period of time you might be suffering from some really debilitating symptoms that leads um, your healthcare team then to utilise the pill as a way to manage that. Mm -hmm. And we then just stay on the pill. So we don't ever really give ourselves the opportunity to get that feedback from such an important vital sign as to how our body's going mm. because we know if our menstrual cycle is not not regular that's a red flag mm -hmm. we know that if our luteal phase is really short that's a red flag we know that if we are suffering debilitating symptoms that's a red flag and these when you're not on the oral contraceptive pill you get all of this feedback and information that lets you make informed decisions about your health and future fertility. So it could be that these women maybe have a bit of HA or they might, um, you know, have PCOS that's never been picked up or diagnosed, which is incredibly common. Mm. And we even have women that have undergone multiple rounds of IVF treatment. And then someone might decide to look and say, oh, actually, you've got PCOS. Um Let's try and get your cycle regular to start with because we know having a regular period, not only are you producing progesterone, which is so good for your mood mm -hmm. and helps with that, but the follicular fluid, so the fluid that's in our follicles where our eggs grow, so this is inside our ovary, 
that fluid composition will be much better and nurture those eggs better when you're ovulating regularly. Mm -hmm. It has less inflammation. It's got more antioxidants in it. It actually, the eggs come out with lower rates of aneuploidy or essentially chromosomal abnormalities. So no one's telling people this. It's like IVF is not the solution to fix that. Try and implement some of these really evidence-based lifestyle strategies that we know have an impact ovulate regularly and then you're giving yourself the best chance of nurturing healthy eggs even if you do have to undergo IVF and there are many reasons why someone would undergo IVF so Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not saying don't undergo IVF Mm -hmm. I've been through the process and absolutely that's a fantastic option I just want you to know that IVF is not going to change the quality of your eggs or sperm or uterus. And honestly, I've never even thought about the the fluid you were saying that's, you know, located in your ovaries. It's never even crossed my mind. But as you were saying that, I was nodding and I was thinking that just makes so much sense, doesn't it? It is reflective of the fluid in our bodies. Essentially, it's just this little sort of microcosm of what's going on in our body. If we are not giving ourselves enough nutrients, if we are... Um, you know, having high levels of inflammation, if our gut's disrupted, all of that is then reflected in the content of our follicular fluid. Even if we're not having enough um, omega-3s, all these beautiful compounds that we know are beneficial for our health, then that fluid composition will be quite different. And particularly with endometriosis, so that fluid in our follicles, the volume of our peritoneal fluid like which is the fluid in our abdominal cavity Mm -hmm. that changes across our menstrual cycle okay so we've got fluid transiting from different areas of the body Mm -hmm. and if you have endometriosis lesions present your peritoneal fluid will have high levels of these inflammatory proteins you can even diagnose um the presence of endometriosis or be likely to pick that up by looking at someone's peritoneal fluid. That's that's not the clinical diagnosis technique, but in studies where women have endometriosis and those without, the peritoneal fluid will differentiate that. And also the gut microbiome will differentiate that. So this is understanding why endometriosis has such an impact on our fertility. And so what I'm sort of taking away from that is as women, we really want to know our body's best and how they're sort of functioning and are we optimizing our health? And if we're using something like the pill, particularly if, you know, we went on it when we were 16 or 17, just because of say bad cramping, like a lot of young women do, and we're still on it when we're 30, it can just almost mask a lot of what might actually be happening behind the scenes. And for a lot of us, we don't actually understand if we have a healthy menstrual cycle, if things are going along as they should because a lot of these symptoms that we might pick up or even conditions are actually being masked by something potentially like the pill. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're now in an age where um, women have been empowered with so much more knowledge and research around these components so Mm -hmm. that we can begin to question and advocate for ourselves and make informed decisions. In no way, again, is the pill good or bad. I think it's looking at individual circumstance, but with all of the knowledge we have now, we're far more aware of these things. I wish someone had been talking about this, you know, like 30 years ago for me. Absolutely. And I love that there are just 
so many researchers looking at females now. Like it's so, it's incredible. Like particularly even in the exercise area, you know, it's always men being studied, men being studied. There was barely any studies about females and barely any about females on their menstrual cycles, were there? Oh, I know. And I'm guilty of that. Absolutely. Do you know why? Because in back in the day, it's just like males, they're the ones that want to come into the laboratory. Males are the ones that don't have a menstrual cycle. So, hey, we can get them in and test them at any time of the week. Yeah. So, very much a convenience factor, which is is not a, um, you know, it's not a reason that why that has happened. Like, it's not justifiable. So, we, my PhD student that's just submitted, part of her work was doing an audit on all of the studies around um, gastrointestinal integrity in terms of looking at the demographics of those populations and who had utilised males, who had utilised females, and if they did utilise females, were they following best practice in terms of the reporting and methodology around actually understanding someone's menstrual cycle and quantifying the stage of the menstrual cycle rather Mm. than, you know, again, if you go and ask most women, are you in your follicular phase or luteal phase, they, they would look at you going, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So, you know, these these are the things that now we're starting to hear more murmurings of in the background and we're starting to be a lot more proactive and take ownership of this going. If we want to be working with females and improving their health and performance, we need to research females and we need to make sure that we've got enough there for evidence-based decisions. Yeah, I love that. Now, we've mentioned evidence-based a few times now, which I love because this is an evidence-based podcast as well. So what are some evidence-based lifestyle strategies that we can use to optimize our fertility, I guess, or optimize that sort of preconceptive phase? If we're thinking about getting pregnant, if we're thinking about expanding our family at some stage, what are some things that we can really do from a lifestyle perspective that are going to help? Okay. Um, The list nutrition, mm-hmm. exercise, mm-hmm. look after your mental health and well-being, make sure you're getting quality sleep and reducing your exposure to endocrine disruptors or those um, things that we know in our environment can have an impact on our fertility. So, okay, that's a big list. And the, even when you start to then dive into each component of that, that there's so much you can do within each of that. And that's the thing. Most people we see in the clinic, they come to us like they've already had maybe even eight, nine rounds of IVF. They are eating well. They have read everything. They are looking to, um, you know, they're looking after their health and well-being. And so, but yet there is still things that we can do for them to improve that chance of pregnancy. So nutrition is a big one and nurturing our gut microbiome is at the foundation of that. So we even, um, I have a book that's been co-authored with our dietitian who also has a PhD in microbiology. And mm-hmm. so we're able to bring these two beautiful worlds together. And it talks about how to, to nurture that gut. But all of the principles that you hear is that common thread coming through with your evidence-based work, Leanne, apply here, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts and seeds and minimizing animal proteins but Mm -hmm. um, one of the big components that we commonly see is women not getting enough carbohydrate absolutely because people are scared of carbohydrate they think it's going to make them put on weight or they've been told to avoid it 
And again, like with protein and fats, carbohydrates are so many different things. Like a carbohydrate can be a sugary lolly or a beautiful whole grain cracker. Mm -hmm. So in looking at fertility outcomes, it might surprise people to know that one of the best predictors of IVF success and pregnancy success, and this is still applicable in the world of natural conception, is actually the whole grain intake in the 12 months before treatment. So that was associated with a thicker uterine lining, um, you know, increased pregnancy rates and an increased chance of live birth. So, you know, our whole grains are things like barley, brown rice, quinoa, corn, you know, wholemeal bread, um, teff, like all of those things. And they are fundamental in nurturing our gut bugs because they're providing the prebiotic fibers mm-hmm. that our gut bugs need to thrive. So um, nutrition is a really big part of it, but also physical activity in looking globally, if you have the balance of physical activity right, pregnancy rates increase in women 100 and 110% compared to women that don't exercise. Oh, wow. And also, yeah, also for men, men that then undertake some um, structured aerobic and resistance training can increase pregnancy rates by 90%. The, like th- these stats will blow your mind. That's crazy. Is that due to the like the quality of the sperm yeah, or just the, the overall chance of, you know, them coming together? <laughs> <laughs> no. So there's a few different pathways, but essentially when you take semen samples and you look at them before engaging in physical activity and then after a period of 12 or 24 weeks of, um, I should say sperm takes about 80 days to make. So anything you do in those 80 days prior to providing a sample or, you know, natural conception, that will have an impact. So Mm -hmm. you can't go, you know, 60 days, be really great um, adopting positive lifestyle strategies and then go out on a bender and drink lots of alcohol and expect that your sperm is going to be great, you know, at the 80-day mark. So For two weeks. <laughs> absolutely. Just consistency. But so I consistency think with anything matters. we do as health professionals, we, we want it to be life-sustaining. We want whatever we're doing with clients to be things that become really easy to adopt and routine and it's about abundance and not restriction. Mm-hmm. And those are the concepts that we want to give people for lifelong health, you know, even mm. with what they learn with mm-hmm. us will hopefully improve their chance of conception. But then they've got the tools and knowledge that they are applying that forever and a day and influencing the next generation. That's important. I got off track there a bit, but when we're looking at sperm samples sort of before and after a period of exercise, mm-hmm. that semen volume will sometimes increase. You will have more sperm in there. The sperm that is in there will have a reduction in DNA fragmentation. It will have higher levels of antioxidants and it will have lower levels of inflammatory proteins. This stuff is incredible. So we, we've we even had clients that have had essentially no sperm present in their semen sample. And then they have engaged in lifestyle modification. And then coming back, they have gone, oh my gosh, you would not believe it. My husband now has some sperm present in his semen. We can actually try to utilize his sperm instead of donor sperm. Like this is how impactful these changes can be. And it is a continuum. I think that's it. If someone tells you there's a quick fix or something you can do and in two weeks time, the world will change and you'll be pregnant. 
again, a bit of a red flag. Mm. Our gut community is really responsive to diet. So, yes, it can change within 24 hours of eating some really beautiful foods and prebiotics, but it's a process. Like to change that entire community is going to take work. Yeah, that's amazing. And because I know your background is in exercise physiology, of course, how much or how frequently, like I don't know a lot of people, if they're not exercising at all, they might think, well, that's great, but I can't exercise seven days a week. I'm busy. I don't have time. I've got kids. Yeah, I've already got kids, whatever it might be. Is it two days a week matters? Is it three, four days a week? How sort of often does the research show us we're going to get those beneficial, you know, lifestyle strategies to optimize conception from? Is it couple of days. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about the balance of physical activity because like with anything, even from a nutrient perspective, too much of something is rarely a good thing. So Mm -hmm. exercise is working because it is nurturing our gut community. It's increasing the beneficial bacteria there. It's increasing butyrate production. Mm -hmm. It's changing our immune function. And so all of these are really intricately related. So when we're talking about what exercise can I do, okay, it's it's often a very individualized response because what we want to know is, okay, do you have PCOS? Do you have endometriosis? Are you in the unexplained infertility category? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a regular period? These are all of the components that will go into tailoring an exercise prescription for optimal fertility. But if we're talking really globally to It's good for people to understand that the adaptations you get from yoga, from Pilates, from strength training, from aerobic training, they're all different. Mm -hmm. And so once we understand what your needs are, we can start to make sure that we're giving you enough load and stimulus that you will be reaping the benefits of engaging in regular physical activity rather than depleting yourself or increasing inflammation and exacerbating those components. So a really global prescription would be to say, okay, can you do at least 30 minutes of aerobic activity three times a week? Mm -hmm. And that could be at an intensity you might rate at about a six or seven out of 10. So a sort of moderate intensity. And then on top of that, are you doing some strength training? This is incredibly important Mm -hmm. for females and males, and it's going to influence insulin sensitivity, which is incredibly important in terms of pregnancy and conception. It's going to influence our hormone balance. It's going to even then potentially promote us to sleep a bit better, and we'll get so many other flow-on benefits from that physical activity. So, It depends. Um, In clinic, like it might be we're dealing with some really highly trained people that are quite athletic and we'll use particular monitoring tools like heart rate variability so that we can understand their autonomic function and how that's responding to training and how they're coping with load. Mm -hmm. And this is where so much confusion comes in around exercise and fertility and clients will come to us and go, I was told not to exercise or I'm so worried about things that I'm just stopping physical activity altogether. And, you know, rarely is that going to be good for anyone's mental health, (laughs) you know, let alone you're missing out on one of the best antioxidants and anti-inflammatories that we've got, which is physical activity. So, Mm. you know, finding the right balance there because physical activity like good nutrition is going to give you so much benefit and reward for your rest of your life, the rest of your life. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Just as a side anecdote, in 
thinking about that connection between microbiome and performance, it has been shown that women that regularly undertake moderate aerobic exercise three to five times a week, their gut diversity will be better than women that aren't engaging in regular physical activity. And also, if at the end of the mar- a marathon you go and take out some Villanella atypica from a marathon runner, which is a bacteria that will increase in the gut, mm-hmm. if you pull that out and then put that into a mouse, that mouse will run 13% longer. Oh, wow. So you have improved that mouse's performance just by changing that gut bacterial community. And even in older adults and healthy functioning older adults, strength is correlated to that microbiome diversity. So it is just, um, I just love talking about this because people need to know this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, where does it stop? Like there are just so many benefits. And honestly, we could stay on this exercise track, but I did want to rewind for a second because I really wanted to ask you about endocrine disruptors because I think most of us, in essence, know that nutrition is important, healthy eating is important, you know, don't smoke, get some sleep. When we're thinking about general health and fertility, like I think most of us know those things, but endocrine disruptors are something that not a lot of people talk about. So can you let our listeners know what are they and why they might be good slash bad for fertility and gut health? Definitely. So our endocrine disruptors are generally man-made chemicals that we find in the environment and the production of a lot of them was stopped many years ago but because they are so pervasive they are still found in our soil um, and you know often plastics and things like that are a contributor as well so some of the strategies for minimizing exposure to that pretty much anything that's got a really strong fragrance um, could be an endocrine disruptor or something that's going to disrupt our endocrine system which is essentially changing a bit of hormone balance Mm. and so things with really strong fragrances like a perfume deodorant yeah absolutely our eggs are so sensitive to that so if you've ever entered a fertility clinic you'll see the sign saying please don't wear strong perfume or aftershave and that's the reason because those chemicals can be so disruptive and we know that particularly if you have um, a work environment where you're potentially increasing exposure to those things and other environmental toxins like lead or you know you work in a mining environment they have a very real impact on fertility. Even if you live near a really busy freeway and you've got exposure to um, really small air particles and air pollution being a component of that. So there are though some, you know, simple strategies that you can take in reducing that exposure. And again, that's the important part of this um, conversation in terms of utilizing glass to reheat food in a microwave and avoiding plastics Mm -hmm. that's a really simple step Mm -hmm. you can take even once you get home leaving your shoes at the door because our shoes actually will bring in many different chemicals and toxins from the environment I don't go to that level, but it's something that some people can adopt relatively easily and Mm -hmm. just have a, a pair of shoes for the house as soon as you come home. We're looking at particularly health and beauty products. Mm. So our makeup, um, like you mentioned before, perfume, deodorant, just really making some choices around that that tend to be utilising natural products that don't have a lot of the phthalates and all of those components inside. It is really interesting to note because even when you look at this and say, for example, the presence of BPA, which is a big one, Mm. the results among studies is so heterogeneous because 
And it's always going, why are some people really impacted by that and others aren't impacted at all, even though these levels are sort of looking the same in their follicle fluid and things like that? And I, again, it might be interesting to see what transpires in the research field, but possibly it comes down to how healthy is your gut microbiome. So there's some research done in animals that shows the more diverse your gut microbiome, the less likely you are to absorb these endocrine disruptors from your gut with that exposure. Interesting. Yes, absolutely. So again, you know, and one of the ways that they improved diversity in these animal models was through exercise. Mm. So if you exercise, you're improving diversity, reducing that absorption of any potential endocrine disruptors and getting so many other benefits that flow on from that. Oh, that's fascinating. Again, I could keep you on this podcast for hours. I think we'll definitely have to get you back. <laughs> but I will just quickly say as well, one of the big ones is also like cleaning products as well. I think a lot of people don't really even think about that until they are pregnant. Then they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be cleaning the bathroom with these really strong chemicals. But as you said, they are all endocrine disruptors. So really looking at just doing a full sweep of the house from your makeup bag to your to you know what you're spraying on yourself in terms of deodorants and perfumes but also all of the cleaning chemicals that we use on a you know semi-regular basis as well yeah absolutely and looking at depending on your workplace environment in understanding and following all the safety procedures and protocols in place to minimize that exposure yeah Absolutely. All right. Well, as I said, we will absolutely get you back on the podcast to go a little bit more specifically into some of these areas. But thank you so much for all of your knowledge in terms of, you know, the gut fertility, even the, the, what we ended on, the endocrine disruptors. I think for some people, that will be the first time they've actually ever heard of that. So it's just so fascinating. But what I would love to know from you before you leave us is say, for example, we've got a couple and they've been on their fertility journey for years. They're sort of feeling a bit burnt out. They're sort of, you know, they're just a little bit over it by now. They're kind of like, why isn't this happening? We've tried everything. What would be your biggest take-home messages for people at home that have just, they've kind of lost that motivation anymore. They're a little bit overwhelmed. They're just kind of like, we don't even know what to do anymore. We feel like we've tried everything. What would be your biggest takeaway tips, the one to two things you would like every person to focus on in terms of trying to optimize their gut and their fertility long-term if there was just one or two small things that they could start today and continue on with? One would be to come and see us <laughs> if you are at that point mm -hmm. where you are. And this is what we do. We see these clients and they're like, oh my gosh, why didn't we not hear about you sooner? I'll come and see you sooner because you are, you're exhausted. You feel like you're doing all the right things and you probably are. And it's just about fine tuning and getting that extra level of support and evidence-based guidance to make sure you're on track there in terms of something else they can do. Mm -hmm. Our gut loves diversity. So one of the simplest things would be Get out a piece of paper, put it near your fridge or your microwave and write down each different type of plant food that you're having during the week mm -hmm. and see if you can, at the end of the week, have 30 different plant foods on there. Mm -hmm. And that's just a way of getting us to think about, oh, am I eating the same things every morning like it's blueberries and raspberries or, you know, it could be healthy food, but it's the same types of food each week. Whereas mm -hmm. we really want to feed our gut different prebiotic fibers. So am I having some grains in there? Am I having, you know, different types of vegetables? Am I having different types of fruit? Am I having legumes, you know? And you can start to look at dietary patterns and understand if you are feeding your gut bugs a lot of diversity in the foods that you're eating. So that is something that's a very simple step mm -hmm. that you can 
do and start to look at and you might find oh my gosh it's Thursday and I'm still having the same 15 foods Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that are maybe healthy foods but it's the same foods like let's actually get a little bit more diversity in here and we know that diet diversity is very much related to diversity of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Which is going to help to optimise our fertility, which we now know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so um, people can also read our book, Create a Fertile Gut, that dives into all of this science and those practical strategies to manage fertility. And we have a Fertile Gut Masterclass that is accessible online, self-paced, and within three weeks people can turn around their nutrition and get so much knowledge about how to eat for fertility and nurturing their microbiome. Mm. That's what breaks my heart is people feeling lost and feeling as though there's nothing else I can do. I'm exhausted by this journey. It is incredibly draining, like, you know, emotionally, physically, financially. Mm -hmm. And it's about going, hey, let's actually take the time and see have you nurtured those ingredients? Are you coming in with the best egg and sperm and and uterus ready to go? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. Well, we've probably taken up so much of your valuable time today, so I better let you go. Um, But where can our listeners follow you in terms of social media? Um, The book that you were talking about, The Fertile Gut, where can they pick that up at? Absolutely. So you can find me at the IVF Project on Instagram and then also at Fertile Gut. And you'll be able to get fantastic evidence-based tips and strategies that we post on there so do follow us at those two places and they've got links to our website of course where you can find our masterclass. but our book create a fertile gut is available on amazon so you can download it even if you don't have a kindle you can get a kindle app and you can download and read off there amazing well again thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and listeners at home if you enjoyed it which i'm sure you did please write in and let me know through social media or send me an email if you would like um, Cecilia to come back on the podcast, which I'm sure that you would and what more specific things you would like us to talk about because I love your background in terms of exercise physiology and I'd love to delve a little bit more into how you know, we can really use exercise and performance-based exercise, you know, not just training to burn calories or training to say, tick the box and say, oh, we've done that. I would really love to know a little bit more of the science behind, you know, some of that cool stuff around exercise and the, the health benefits we could get from that. So that would be my own selfish reason I would bring you back. But listeners, we would love to know what you would love to hear from Cecilia if she was to come back on the podcast. So thank you again so much for joining us today. Even I learned so much today. So I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I hope your listeners have enjoyed hearing all about creating a fertile gut.